Let's uh, bow together as we pray, as we approach God's word this morning. Our Father, we do thank you for the privilege we have to gather, to sing, and to declare your praise. I pray, Lord, as we prepare for Christmas, as we think upon the incarnation, the reality that your Son took on human flesh, came and dwelt among us, that you would cause that wonder to come upon us. And may you help us to see with fresh eyes all that Christ accomplished and all that he secured in our behalf. We pray that you'd open our eyes to see the wonders of your word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, I invite you to take your personal copy of God's word and turn this morning to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, where we read from earlier this morning. two verses I'm going to draw your attention to this morning. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can find it on the Pew Bible uh, that is in the Pew Rack in front of you on page 1018. 1018, Luke chapter 2. I want to draw your attention to two verses, verses 13 and 14. It says there in Luke 2, 13, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The words of these verses were upon the mind and heart of the great American poet, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, on Christmas Day, 1863, when he penned a poem entitled Christmas Bells. This poem was later set to music, and it comes down to us, known by its first line, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. In the poem, Longfellow wrestles with the wickedness and hostility that he sees all around him. He struggles to reconcile the current state of affairs that he sees in his family and his world, and yet with the message of the angels that there's to be peace on earth, goodwill towards men. How can there be peace on earth, he thought, when the wrong seems to be so strong? The context of Longfellow's life actually provides some color to this song and this poem. You see, on Christmas Day, 1863, when he wrote these words, the Civil War had been raging for two and a half years. He watched his beloved nation in great turmoil as it struggled for its very existence. He himself was a strong abolitionist and thus desired to see the institution of slavery eradicated from the land. His leanings filtered down into his children and his oldest son Charles had taken up the cause and had run off to join the army, the Union Army. In the war, Charles escaped the Battle of Gettysburg because of an illness, but on December 1st, 1863... Longfellow received a telegram that said that his son had been shot through the left shoulder with a bullet grazing his spine and that paralysis was indeed likely. Longfellow immediately left for Washington, D.C. to go gather his son and bring him home for convalescence. And so on Christmas Day, 1863, Longfellow was bearing the weight of the war and a uh, injured son. But more than that, there on that Christmas, Longfellow stood as twice a widower. He had lost his first wife, Mary, in 1835 after only four years of marriage from a complication of miscarriage. Then in 1843, he married a woman named Frances, and they had six children together and were very happy. But tragedy struck again in 1861, while sealing an envelope with hot wax, Frances's dress caught on fire. She ran into Henry's study. Henry did all that he could to try to extinguish the flames, ultimately smothering the flames with his own body. But his wife died of her wounds the next day, and he was so injured himself he could not even attend her funeral. As you can imagine, he was absolutely devastated by her loss. 
The first Christmas without her, Christmas 1861, he wrote, How inexpressibly sad are all holidays. A year after her passing, he wrote, I can make no record of these days. Better leave them wrapped in silence. Perhaps someday God will give me peace. His journal entry for December 25th, 1862 reads, A Merry Christmas, say the children, but that is no more for me. But then a year later, 1863, on December 25th, he sat at his home, a depressed widower caring for six children, one of whom was recovering from injuries from war. And as he heard the bells ring in the churches of Cambridge, Massachusetts, he reflected on the truth of Luke 2, verse 14, in which the angels sang of peace on earth, and he penned this now famous poem. Here are a few of those stanzas. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom held rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day. A voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then from each black, accursed mouth, the cannon thundered in the south. And with the sound, the carols drowned of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. When we read the story and the poetry of Longfellow in this poem, we see the collision between the Bible's promises and reality. It's a collision between dreams and hopes and promises on one hand, and yet brokenness and heartache and pain on the other. And in one sense, this is what we are all faced with at Christmas. The world is not as it should be, and we know that and we feel it, some years more deeply than others. This year, our family was reminded of the brokenness of this world as our son underwent brain surgery to remove a tumor in his head. This is not how things should be. Several of you have lost loved ones this year. Your time with them cut short, most unexpectedly. Again, this is not how things should be. And as we talked about last week, Satan, the great enemy of God, is blinding the minds of unbelievers, is deceiving the nations, and it's causing people to destroy one another. Nations rise up against nations. People rise up against other people. They do harm to one another. This is not how things should be. However, it's in the midst of this that the message of Christmas strikes like a clear note. And it reminds us that the Son of God took on human flesh, became the incarnate Son of God, born as a baby to bring peace on earth. In other words, Jesus came to make wrong right. He came to bring healing and wholeness to this earth once again. Peace on earth is indeed the intended result of the incarnation. Maybe you're here today and you're struggling with the problems that you see all around you. Maybe you see brokenness in your own life, results of your own decisions. Maybe you're seeing brokenness in your family, pain between you and those whom you love. And maybe it's just the brokenness you see all around us in our world today that weighs heavy upon you. I tell you that the good news of Christmas is that Jesus Christ came to this earth to bring an end to the strife. He came to bring peace where there is hostility. He came to bring wholeness where there is brokenness. 
He came to bring joy where there is sorrow. Christmas really is the promise of everything good for us. And so this morning, we're going to ground our study in these two verses in Luke chapter 2, and then we're going to use these as a launching point to look at all that the Bible says about peace on earth. So let's look back at Luke chapter 2 here as we begin. Verse, as we heard earlier, as Brother Andy read, verses 1 through 7 describe the birth of Christ and the events leading up to that. And then in verses 8 through 12, we see that a single angel appears to the shepherds on the hillside and announces that birth of Christ. And then here in verses 13 and 14, we see more angels arrive and we, in essence, see the response of heaven at the birth of Christ. What was the, the mood in heaven at the time that Jesus came to earth? What were they thinking about and singing about? Well, we get a little glimpse of that here. And more than simply a celebration, these words further describe the significance of the birth of the baby born in Bethlehem that night. Look at verse 13 and 14 with me. Then suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so these verses cause us to worship God and, and particularly to worship Him in two significant ways in light of the birth of Christ. The first significant way we are led to worship God is to praise God for sending His Son. As simple as that. We're to praise God for sending His Son. And we see this in the first line of the angel song. Glory to God in the highest. The highest being a term for the highest place, i.e. heaven. The abode of God. And so here we see that the single angel is joined by a choir of angels. Notice verse 13 says, and suddenly. That word suddenly doesn't just mean quickly, doesn't just mean surprisingly. It just also describes the unusual nature of what appeared. It wasn't something that popped on suddenly and quickly that was familiar. It was something that popped on suddenly and quickly that was totally unusual, totally spectacular, totally unprecedented. And suddenly there was an, with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. These angels, part of only a, a snippet of the armies of heaven, were sent here to earth. They've been spending their entire existence praising God in heaven and serving the saints. But here, they are now allowed to take their choir on the road and to go and come to this hillside in Bethlehem and sing their praises before an audience besides just the Lord. Are they sent to the great aristocrats of the, that age? Are they sent to the, the powerful and the rich? No. They're sent to lowly shepherds. Those who were despised even in Israel. They were the rough bunch of society. Those that you would plug your nose if they walked by and want to avoid associating with them. God sent his angels to earth in order to, in order to do what? To declare his praise. They say glory to God. They worship God by recognizing the glory that he already possesses. Whenever angels or People give glory to God. They aren't adding anything to God that he doesn't have. It's not as if God has a glory bucket and there's some missing and we need to give him glory in order to fill it up to the brim. No, God already has all the glory in all the universe. He is the most glorious one. And when we give glory to him, we simply are attesting to and confessing that glory that he already has. And that's what the angels do here. They give glory to God, recognizing and declaring what God already possesses. He is the most glorious being. He is God in the highest. What spawned this praise? What caused the angels to do this? It was the birth of God's son. There in the manger in Bethlehem. God has sent not one of many sons. God had spent his, sent his special son. His one and only. That he had loved for all of eternity. He sent him to incarnate, to take on human flesh, to become one of his creatures. And so this praise of the angels here 
declaring in unbridled praise to God for the birth of Christ reminds us that truly the giving of Jesus and the birth of Christ at Christmas time is to be a cause for our praise as well. The Father is deserving of all of our praise for the central event of Christmas, that is the giving of Christ. And have you actually spent time thinking about the, the reasons why God the Father should be praised at Christmas time? He should be praised for his generosity. For as I already referenced, he did not give stingily. He gave generously. He gave of his most prized possession that we might be saved. He should be praised for the love that he manifested to humanity. For God loved the world in this way that he gave his only son, John 3.16 says. He gave out of his love. He should be praised for his wisdom of knowing the precise time when Christ would arrive. God was in control of this story. He knew precisely when to bring his son into the world and he brought it about exactly that way and therefore we should also praise him for his power. His power that is enable, enables him to orchestrate all human events to bring about exactly what he wants. He brought about everything so that at this time, the virgin would conceive a child and give birth in this way. The father is the author of history and is working out his plan of redemption. Nothing can stand in his way. No one can thwart his power. No one can disrupt what he's planned. When he determines it, it will happen. And so, here as the angels burst forth in praise, saying, glory to God in the highest, we're reminded that we too should give praise to God. We too should give glory to God who dwells in the highest places for the sending of his son at Christmas time. But the second thing the verse reminds us to do is to praise Christ for securing our peace. To praise Christ for securing our peace. And we see this in the second half of verse 14. And it's this aspect of the angel's song that I want us to focus on and devote the rest of our time to. Now the first thing we need to address in this verse is the translation. Because if you are all familiar with the King James version of this verse, and some of you may not think that you are, but if you've watched a Charlie Brown Christmas and listened to Linus give his declaration of what the true meaning of Christmas is, you've heard him quote from the King James version. And you'll notice that the ESV, as I'm using here, and other and most modern translations have a different rendering of the second half of this verse. The King James Version and the New King James Version, which follows it, reads, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. Whereas the ESV says, On earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now I have to admit, the poetry of the KJV is better than the poetry of the all modern translations. They indeed were not only scholar theologians, but they were linguists at truly at heart. And therefore, the King James Version in many ways has wonderful lyrical quality to it. But that aside, the King James Version sees this as three lines of poetry. But this passage being studied in recent years seems to show that this is better understood as two lines of poetry. And you can understand it this way. Glory, the first line is glory to God in the highest or in heaven. The second line is peace to men on earth. There's a location, heaven and earth. There's a subject, God and man. And there's a thing given to them, glory and peace. The word translated goodwill in the King James Version is better understood as further defining the people to whom this peace comes. So rather than speaking about goodwill to all mankind, the angels are declaring that through Jesus the Messiah, the peace of God will rest upon those whom God favors. In other words, it's simply this. God's peace is for God's people. God's peace is for God's people. Now some people don't like this newer translation because it sounds like the great grand benefits of Jesus that go to all the world are being limited to a small group rather than all of humanity. They say, didn't Jesus come to save the world? Why should we limit the benefits of his saving work to only a select group of people? My response is that 
apart from the better understanding of the Greek text that has emerged since the King James was translated in 1611, the idea of God bestowing his favor upon a certain group of people is not new to this verse. This verse stands with many others declaring the sovereign election of God. God chooses his people unto salvation. And so therefore this verse says that peace is promised to those whom God is pleased. With whom God is pleased. And the idea of selection is even there in the narrative itself. Did God reveal himself as I indicated earlier to the rich and the powerful? Did God reveal himself on that night to Herod, the ruler of the land? No, he revealed himself selectively to the, to the shepherds there on that hillside. In other words, God's people are not the ones the world would expect. God chooses nobodies to shame the wise who think they're somebodies. As Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So what does this verse mean to us? Peace on earth, the angel said. I believe that in this declaration of the angels, we can read a promise given to us that we will indeed experience the peace of God. But the question remains, what is this peace? What does that mean? When the angels announced that there would be peace on earth, what were they talking about? And to understand peace, we need to go back to the Old Testament. Because again, these are the opening pages of the New Testament. The opening pages of the Gospel of Luke, as he is seeking to pick up the story from the Old Testament and tell the story of Christ. Peace here is not defined. It's simply given. In the Old Testament, peace translates the Hebrew word shalom. And maybe you've heard that before. Shalom. It's a greeting that is given even in, in Hebrew circles today. Shalom means peace to you. And shalom is broader, has a broader meaning than our word peace often indicates. You see, when we use the word peace, we kind of use it in two general ways. One is the cessation of hostility between two groups. That could be peace between nations. That could be peace between two fighting individuals. But the hostility is ended. There's peace. There's no more war, no more fighting. Or we can use peace in terms of a, in a psychological way, right? We say, I've got peace about this decision. God's just given me peace. And we talk about it in terms of a way that, uh, a mindset that we have. But when the Bible talks about shalom, it's much broader than just the way we use peace. Shalom means fundamentally wholeness. Wholeness. It means wellness, prosperity, rest. And therefore, Shalom, or biblical peace, refers to the full state of blessing that God desires for his people. You think of all the good things that God wants for his people, that's shalom. That's peace. It includes the wholeness of our minds, the wholeness of our bodies, the wholeness of our souls, the wholeness of our communities, of our nations, our community, our, the wholeness of the world. And so, the peace on earth that's promised here is not that we're promised some fuzzy feeling inside that we're just going to have a settled peace or that we're going to have peace of mind. It's much broader than that. But the point I want you to see today is that God intends and wants you to have peace. He wants you to have wholeness, to have completeness. Some of that peace is available today that we can experience in our lives. Some of it will come to us in a future age. But it is all secured, get this, it is all secured by the work of Christ and is therefore guaranteed to each and every one of his people. And so to help us better understand this peace on earth that Jesus brings, I want to have us look at five biblical stages of peace. Five biblical stages of peace. And by looking at these stages, I hope that it will cause us to be able to better give praise to Jesus Christ for the peace that he has secured for each one of us, his people. And what we're going to find is that the peace that Jesus secures for us and God intends for you is far better than you could ever imagine. Let's look at the first stage of biblical peace. And that is the past peace of the garden the past peace of the garden. You'll remember that after creating mankind, he placed them in the garden in, described in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. The garden of Eden, the place of perfect peace. I would say that that original state of man was a state of shalom, 
a place of wholeness and completeness. Think about it with me. Think about Adam with himself. He was a man of complete integrity, which integrity means wholeness, and an integer is where that term comes from, and, and refines there's no duplicity. There's no split nature within him. He's completely whole. He's consistent all the way through and through. He was whole internally. And then think of mankind in relation to God. There was a perfect relationship with his creator. There was complete peace. There was no hostility between man and God. There was harmony. Think of Adam in relationship to Eve. Man in relationship with fellow man. There was no hostility. There was no enmity. There was only peace and wholeness in their relationship. And finally, think about Adam or mankind in relation to the natural world, the rest of the planet. There was peace there as well. There was, there was wholeness. There was no uh, fighting that was going on. There was no signs of decay. There was perfect Shalom, and this is what God desired for humanity. When he created the earth in this perfect place, and then he created his special creation, his image bearers, and he placed them in the garden, and he said, look, look around, I made all this for you. He designed a perfect place that we could experience wholeness and enjoy him forever. But as we know, sin disrupted this shalom. Sin made man a duplicitous character to where we are, we are now split in our allegiances. You know, Adam no longer had wholeness internally. It, sin put enmity between man and God. Sin put enmity between man and his fellow man. We see that between Adam and Eve. They turned on one another. And sin also made the natural world a dangerous place to be. And so, as John Milton once stated it, paradise was lost. So the first stage, biblical peace, is the past peace of the garden. But this leads us to the second stage of peace in the Bible, and that is the promised peace of the Messiah. The promised peace of the Messiah. From Genesis 3 onward, where the fall of man takes place, mankind is looking for that paradise again. They're looking for that paradise to be regained, for shalom to be on earth once again. And as we saw last week, there in the garden, after Adam and Eve sinned, God made sure to give hope, to give a promise that indeed all things would not forever be this way, that he would send, that there would be a man born of a woman, offspring of the woman, who would defeat Satan, who would crush the head of the serpent, and thus set mankind free, reversing what had taken place in the fall. This in Genesis 3.15 is the first promise of a deliverer, the first promise of a savior for mankind. This savior would bring relief, would bring safety, would bring deliverance. And so from this point onward, humanity began looking for this deliverer. And they were looking for the one who would bring healing and wholeness to the earth again. We see this longing in the exclamation of Lamech, the father of Noah, when Noah was born. In Genesis chapter 5, the father of Noah says this, When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. They thought maybe Noah was the promised one. Maybe Noah was the one to bring shalom, to bring peace on earth again, to free us from the toil of our hands. Reverse the curse. This person, as we go through the Old Testament, became known as the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one who would bring relief for the people of God. And as the Old Testament story goes forward, God continues to reveal more and more about who this Messiah would be and the peace that he would bring, the shalom that he would bring for his people. I want to show you this in a few passages. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Several of these passages are known for their declaration of the coming of Christ in his first advent. But it's in these that we see that there is peace that is promised in the coming of Messiah. Isaiah chapter 9. You'll find it on the Pew Bible on page 680. 
Look at, starting in verse 5. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You see, this great, ver this great promise of the coming of a child who would be born, he's promised to be the Prince of Peace. And it says that of this peace, there will be no end. This, when the, when the Messiah comes to set up his kingdom, he's going to reign with peace. Let's further see this in Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. You know, remember that Micah 5 verse 2 is commonly quoted in the prophecy that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. But the passage goes on and describes how the Messiah, the one born in Bethlehem, would bring about peace for his people. Micah chapter 5, we'll actually begin in verse 2. It says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient, of ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. And the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. You see the connection between the one born in Bethlehem to the one who would then regather his people Israel and would then rule over them and bring about peace. They're going to dwell securely and he shall be their peace. Verse 5. Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9. Again, verses that are quoted in the New Testament about the, coming, the first coming of Christ but go on to describe the peace that this Messiah would bring. Zechariah 9, verse 9. This first verse is quoted in relation to Jesus coming into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry before his crucifixion. It says, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak, what? Peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. You see, this one who would ride in on Jerusalem on a donkey is one who will ultimately speak peace to the nations, whose rule would be over the entire earth. And finally, I want to turn you to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel 34. Again, this is all under the heading of the promised peace of the Messiah. That the Messiah, this individual, would be the one to bring about true shalom, true peace upon this earth. Ezekiel 34, we see in the first part of, the, of this chapter, the Lord condemns the shepherds of Israel. He condemns the rulers of Israel because they are shepherds who don't take care of the sheep. They're shepherds who devour the sheep. They are false shepherds. And so the Lord condemns them. But he promises in the midst of that condemnation, he says, but I will be your shepherd. I will be your true shepherd, the good shepherd. And so look in verse 22, he says, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be, be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set up over them one shepherd, 
my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Stop right there for a moment. This is written by Ezekiel during the time of the exile, which means that King David has already lived and died, which means that this David that is spoken of is the greater descendant of David, therefore the promised Messiah. Okay? And look what's going to come in the midst of this one who will be shepherd among them. Verse 25. I will make with them a covenant of peace, of shalom, and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them in the places all around my hill a blessing. And I will send down the showers in their season, and they shall be showers of blessing. And the trees of the field shall yield their fruit, and the earth shall yield its increase, and they shall be secure in their land. And they shall know that I am the Lord." When I break the bars of their yoke and deliver them from the hand of those who enslave them, they shall no more be a prey to the nations, nor shall the beasts of the land devour them. They shall dwell securely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will provide for them renowned plantations so that they shall no more be consumed with hunger in the land and no longer suffer the reproach of the nations. And they shall know that I am the Lord, their God with them, and that they, the house of Israel, are my people, declares the Lord God, and you are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God, declares the Lord God. Friends, what I want us to see from all these passages is, number one, the Messiah will bring peace when he sets up his kingdom. When he comes to rule the nations with a rod of iron and becomes king over Israel and over the entire earth is when this shalom will come. We learn that, that, number two, he will come and destroy his enemies, and he will rule the nations. He won't just rule a part of the earth. He will rule the entire earth. His domain will stretch across the entire planet. And thirdly, we see from these verses that while others benefit from this, i.e., us who are Gentiles, we cannot miss the fact that Israel most certainly must benefit from these because these are verses spoken directly to Israel. And fourthly, we see that peace includes wholeness and bounty in all areas of life. Did you pick that up from that last set of verses? The, the, the banishment of hunger, the idea of security in the land, all the things that we want Right? To sit down peacefully with our families, to enjoy good food, to enjoy the no threat of anything harmful coming to us. That's what we all long for. This ultimate peace and rest from everything bad. That's going to come when Messiah sets up his kingdom and it's only through him. But fifthly, I want you to see that this peace comes on earth. This is not describing some sort of peace that will be attained in a heavenly reality, some sort of ethereal antibody or d d disconnected from our body reality. This comes physically on earth. We're dealing with hunger. We're dealing with hills. We're dealing with plantations. We're dealing with trees bearing fruit. This is the new and renewed earth that will, these promises of peace will take place. This picture of shalom brought to the earth by Messiah is beautiful, isn't it? It reaches into our hearts. We long for this. And so we can understand when first century Israel is looking for their Messiah that they're hoping for a conqueror. They read those same passages. And they said, when this Messiah comes, man, he's going to crush our enemies and he's going to set up his kingdom. This is going to be great. And we get it. We want those things too. But see, there was a problem. His people were not pure. His people were unclean. They were spiritually estranged from God. And so even though Israel could receive forgiveness through the sacrifices on a regular basis, they had to continually offer those because they continued to sin. And so, in other words, the point is this. Israel and all those who would trust in Israel's God needed a sacrifice that would satisfy God's wrath once and for all and enable them to enter into that shalom and not soil that shalom themselves. How could they enter that kingdom of peace and not bring in wickedness and vileness with it. They needed to be cleansed. Their sin needed to be atoned for. And the prophet Isaiah tells us that this, this Messiah, this conquering king, would be the very one who would sacrifice himself to bring about true peace with God. Turn to Isaiah 53. A familiar passage, I know. But I want you to see the mention of peace in this well-known passage. 
Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he, the Messiah, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us shalom. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, we see that the Messiah himself is the one who would be chastised, who would be punished, who would be slaughtered, so that we might have shalom with God, so that we might have peace. Not only would he bring the physical aspects of Shalom, but he would bring the spiritual ones himself. He would secure spiritual peace through his blood and physical peace through his sword. And this leads us to the third stage of biblical peace, and that is the purchased peace of the cross. The purchased peace of the cross. As we turn the pages from the Old Testament to the New Testament, this expectation of peace continued. We saw last week that Luke, in Luke 179, Zechariah prophesied that the Messiah would guide the feet of his people in the way of peace, of shalom. Jesus, friends, did not come to simply bring us peace of mind. He came to overhaul this planet. And as we know, this full shalom that was promised in the Old Testament didn't come at his first coming. After Jesus presented himself to his people Israel as the long-awaited Messiah, they rejected him and they nailed him to a cross. And at that point, it may have seemed that God's plans for shalom upon this earth may have been disrupted, may have been rejected and thwarted. But God, through the rejection of his son, was bringing about peace through the cross of Christ. And this is the good news of salvation that we proclaim today. This is the good news of salvation that is proclaimed at Christmas. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Do you see that through Jesus, the world, the sinful world, is being reconciled to God? There was a way for, the, for mankind to be reconciled to their creator once again. It was through Christ. Since the garden, mankind had been estranged from God. But because of the sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross, all that was changed. Ephesians chapter 2 describes this reality. That the cross of Christ, the blood of Jesus, brought about our peace. Ephesians 2 says, Therefore remember that at one time you were you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace, friends. It's only through him that we are reconciled to our creator. It's only through him that our relationship with him is made right. And let me just say that if you're here today and you have not trusted in Christ, if you have not fully believed upon him to be your savior and your redeemer, you stand estranged from God. That is what the Bible tells that your sin has made you uh, separated from God. And therefore, you are without hope and without God in the world. You stand condemned under your sin. But the good news of Christmas and the good news of the gospel of Jesus is that there is hope because he has provided a way. By his sacrifice upon the cross, he has satisfied the wrath of God on your behalf if you would but place your faith in him and trust him fully for the salvation that only he can bring. Trust him fully for the shalom, the peace that he can bring to your heart, to your life, and to your future. Only through Jesus can you find wholeness. Only through Jesus can you find healing for the brokenness that is found within us and around us. Do not trust in your own good works. Do not think that you've been some sort of moral person and that God will somehow see that you're better than other people because he judges us by his own standard of holiness, not by comparing us with others. 
To trust in your own good works is a fool's errand. Trust in Christ who has reconciled us to his Father. It is only through Jesus that we have peace, and it's through his cross. And that leads us from the fourth stage, or sorry, to the fourth stage of biblical peace. And that is the present peace of the church. From the purchased peace of the cross to the present peace of the church. That passage that I read in Ephesians chapter 2 goes on. He says, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The background here is Jews and Gentiles. They were at each other's throats. There was hostility that existed between them. But through Jesus, through the blood of his cross, they are brought together and there is now no more hostility between believers. All of those who have placed their faith in Christ find peace in the church. Friends, the church is to be a model of peace to the world in our relationships. Of course, in the church, there are great differences. There are differences of upbringing, of social class, economic class, ethnicity, race. And yet, through the blood of Christ, there is no longer any hostility between those different groups of people. There is to be no grudges held between those groups of people. There is total peace. Let me remind you that this is why critical race theory is an ideology which has no place in the church. Critical race theory teaches that people find their identity first and foremost in their skin color and ethnic culture or economic class or gender or many other categories. But the scriptures say that Christians are to find their identity first and foremost in Christ and the blood that he shed. Now let me, differences still exist. The fact that hostility has been erased doesn't mean that we're all uh, monocultural or that there are no differences between us. No, there is great diversity within the body of Christ, and that's beautiful. But again, our identity is first and foremost found in Christ. The reality is there's no hostility between us because Jesus himself has become our peace, it says. And therefore, Ephesians chapter 4 says we're to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We are to fight for peace within the church. And fight for peace in our homes. And to, towards unbelievers, Paul says in Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace, live peaceably with all. We're to live lives of peace, be messengers of peace. In fact, he calls our gospel the gospel of peace in Ephesians chapter 6. And so relationally, the church is to be a living, breathing model of what the kingdom of Messiah will one day be like. Jesus has changed us. He is our peace. It's all about him. And that leads us to our fifth and final stage of biblical peace. And that is the perfect peace of the future. The perfect peace of the future. We, the church, are to model what the perfect peace of the future is to be like. Just to give her a glimpse of it. That will come when Christ returns. Revelations, Revelation 19 through 21 describe how Jesus will return to earth. He'll destroy his enemies as prophesied through the Old Testament that we already read. And he will then set up his kingdom and rule the nations with a rod of iron. He'll reign for a thousand years where the Old Testament says peace will flow like a river. Israel will dwell securely and all the promises of the prophets will come true. Jesus Christ, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, will be exalted and worshipped by all the earth. And Jesus will receive the inheritance of the nations that were promised to him because Jesus will bring shalom on earth. At the end of the thousand years, Jesus will hand over the kingdom to his Father and he'll enter into what is called the eternal state, eternity, the new heavens and the new earth. And let me just say that our eternity will not be us floating along in the clouds as disembodied souls. Our eternity will be on earth because peace on earth, friends, is our ultimate destiny. That is what our eternity will be, will be peace on a renewed earth. It will be everything that we ever wanted and never dreamed. It will answer every longing of our hearts. And so, on that night in Bethlehem, when the angels declared, peace on earth, 
they were declaring that it was through this baby born, the Son of God who took on human flesh, that peace would truly come. It's only through him, friends, that you can have peace in your life. It's only through him that you can have peace with God, that you can have peace with others, your family, your friends, that you can have wholeness of mind and body. And Jesus will one day bring a world full of bounty, abundance, peace, and security. And until that day, we rest knowing that that has been guaranteed to us because of his death and resurrection. And so we only, as we look around this world, we only need to trust that God knows what he's doing, that ultimately evil will not prevail, that Christ will come and make all things right and bring peace on earth. And this was the truth that came to Henry Wadworth Longfellow's mind as he listened to those carol bells in 1863, for he ended his poem with this final stanza. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have to reflect upon the peace that is promised in Scripture. Oh, Father, we recognize this world is filled with everything but peace. You're, the enemy seeks to bring disruption everywhere we turn. Disruption in our own selves, disruption in our families, wreak havoc in the nations. And yet, Father, we thank you for the promise that that wrong, that enemy will not prevail. That one day Jesus will have the final say. We praise you that we today can know the peace of having a reconciled relationship with you. And I pray for those here that do not know that peace, Father, that you would bring them to repentance today, to cry out to you for mercy and find that reconciliation that is offered through Jesus. And it's in his name we pray, amen.